You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapters 42 and 43. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob up to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, 
the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Hey, everyone. Jesus is an even better Savior than Amir Abdullah. That's what we're here to celebrate today. Two of you watched the game yesterday, so that was, that was funny to those two of you. It's good. At the core of your relationship with God is quite likely a radical insecurity. You doubt whether God loves you. You question whether you're really saved. You wonder why all the people around you seem to grow faster and experience God's grace in more and different, maybe better ways than you do. There may be a few of you in the room that have the opposite problem. You assume that God loves you because, of course, why wouldn't He? There will be another sermon later in Isaiah for you. But the sermon this morning is particularly for those of you who recognize that at the core of your spiritual reality, there's a sense of restless insecurity. God wants to graciously defeat that insecurity. He wants you to be confident in His love for you. And part of His means for accomplishing that is to help you understand the larger story that you're caught up in. All the promises God is making to Israel in the book of Isaiah are also God's promises to you. All of the faithfulness to His people chronicled in the book of Isaiah is His faithfulness to you. And the only thing that can defeat insecurity and fear in your relationship with God is an understanding of God's covenantal faithfulness to His people. And so my very simple goal this morning is to help you understand the story that you're a part of. I want to help you see the connection between God's saving grace toward His people in the Old Testament and God's saving grace toward you in Christ. And so before we get to Isaiah this morning, we need to do a little bit of work in two other places. Romans in Deuteronomy. I'm trying to craft a case for you. I'm trying to build a narrative for you this morning, and so stick with me. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah in a few short minutes. But first, we need to understand why the book of Isaiah is a book for us. We need to get a sense of the broader story that we're caught up in. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Romans chapter 9. Romans is in the New Testament. It's one of the bigger books there. You should be able to flip around and find it rather simply. I want you to hear what Paul has to say in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. This is a majorly important 
truth for how you understand the Bible. Paul says this, Romans 9, 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The Apostle Paul says here there are two Israels in the Bible. There is ethnic Israel. There are all the people who are physically descended from Abraham. And there is spiritual Israel, the people of the promise, those who actually believe in God's promise of a Redeemer, which is the promise He made to Abraham in the first place. We've seen this same thing in Isaiah, in Isaiah's language of the remnant. He said, yeah, yeah, there's all the people who are a part of the people of God, but then within that people there's a remnant who truly trust, believe, hope in Him and in the promise of His Redeemer. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, this morning, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe the promises of God, then you are a child of Abraham. You were grafted into God's people and into the promises that God made to Abraham. That's a big deal. So let's, let's step back now and get a sense of the larger story. Let's, out of what Paul's saying there in Romans and Galatians, let's get a, a fuller sense of the context of what it is that that story involves. I brought along a little visual aid this morning. I apologize. I know the print on this graphic is small, but we are trying to fit all of human history onto one slide. So you've got to work with me, okay? On the left-hand side of this graphic, you'll see the seven major movements in the biblical storyline. The Bible starts with creation and fall. Then we have Abraham, Israel, the decline into exile, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. Those are the seven major movements within the story. On the right-hand side of this graphic, you'll see more of sort of a timeline of the story with a lot of the characters in the Bible put onto it that sort of gives you a visual picture of how the story of the Bible moves forward. And so we, we begin with creation and the fall in the garden, and quickly thereafter we come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is the first and most important figure in the history of God's dealings with his people, Israel. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house. Abraham's an idolater. He's not a worshiper of the true God. God comes and says, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And through you, through your descendants, all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And so Abraham believes God and obeys. And thus begins the story of God's people. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when the Bible refers to the people of Israel, it's just referring to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Now, you'll notice on that timeline that it sort of shifts to the left and there's the word Egypt in capital letters. This is the book of Exodus. What happens is these descendants of Abraham, we find in the book of Exodus, go to Egypt because of famine, and we find out that they end up there years later enslaved. 
They become a numerous people, but they're in slavery and bondage under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so they cry out to God for deliverance, and God sends Moses as a deliverer, as a figure who will lead his people out of slavery and into freedom and back into the promised land. Next to Abraham, Moses is the most important figure in the Old Testament. And what God is really doing through Moses is he's renewing his covenant with his people. He's renewing the same promise he made to Abraham to bless all nations through his descendants. And the major way that he renews this covenant is through giving the law, the Ten Commandments. The major events in Moses' life and in the book of Exodus are the deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I want to read to you now from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, as Moses gives the people God's law. I want to to read to you what he says because this is going to become very important in the book of Isaiah. So Moses says this, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Keep these statutes and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who... When they hear all these statutes, we'll say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses says in giving the people the law, part of what's going to happen in this is that people are going to see what a great God you serve. They're going to see what a great law this is, how this furthers human flourishing. And they're going to see that you're a great people and that your God is a great God. And this is true. The foundation of almost every moral code in existence in any nation in the world today is derived from the Ten Commandments. Moses goes on to say in Deuteronomy 4, 25, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him, if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, You will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. What's happening in Isaiah's day is the very thing that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is why Isaiah, in the chapter we see this morning, is going to reference Deuteronomy. It's going to point back to what Moses has said. The people in Isaiah's day are in exile in Babylon. They're in bondage. They're under those who serve idols of wood and stone, who can't see or hear or smell. 
And they're crying out to God for deliverance. So let's go back to our timeline for a minute and notice, I circled Isaiah's name again. I know it's hard to see, especially if you're in the back. But the time at which Isaiah is ministering is a time in which this one people of God has now split into two, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. There's been civil war, there's been discord, there's been disobedience and rebellion against God, and part of God's judgment is there's now two peoples instead of one. The people of Israel end up in captivity, in exile, in Assyria in 722 BC, and Isaiah was alive to see this happen and to therefore warn the people in his land, the southern kingdom of Judah, of a similar destiny for them. But now in these chapters that we're in, Isaiah's writing to the people of God in exile in Babylon. You'll see the southern kingdom ends up in exile in Babylon, but notice there's a little U-turn right there. Did you see that on the timeline? So what's going to happen that we haven't gotten to yet is that under Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people are going to be brought out of captivity, out of exile, back into the promised land, which sets the stage then for the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus. So Isaiah's writing to the people of God while they're in exile in Babylon, assuring them of God's purposes for them, that God is not through with them, that God's promises to Abraham have not been nullified, but that he's going to come through on what he said. And he's encouraging them to humble themselves, to repent, and to trust and believe in God. Now, why are we taking all this time to set the context of the story? Quite simply because this is the backstory that Isaiah is referencing in the chapters that we're in. Isaiah, you're going to see, is going to look all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. He's going to look all the way back to the Exodus. And he's going to look all the way forward to the new heavens and new earth. And he's going to help the people see, he wants to help his readers see their lives in light of that story. And God's goal for us this morning is quite the same. He wants us to see our lives in light of this story. Because you see, unless you understand that you are a part of this story, the radical insecurity in your relationship with God will likely remain. To have confidence in God and in His work in your life, you need to see His work in the larger story that you're caught up in. So now that we have all that background, let's go to Isaiah chapter 42. Remember who Isaiah is writing to when and where they live. And let's pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 42. Isaiah says this, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. And this, my friend, should serve as a warning to us that it's possible to see but not see and to hear but not hear. Isaiah doesn't just want intelligence. He wants spiritual perceptivity among the people of God. Here's what they don't see. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. The commands of God, the law of God, the rules that God gave us, 
are not burdensome. They're not obligatory. They're a path to life. They're meant for human flourishing. They're meant to lead us into the the fullness of what it means to be fully alive as human beings. But, verse 22, this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Isaiah is here helping the people of Israel in exile in Babylon understand how they got to where they are. He he says, let me remind you of the story you're living in. God made this gracious promise to Abraham. God gave this righteous law through Moses. It was intended to lead you into life. But rather than believing that, see, you, you disobeyed. You would not walk in His ways. And so therefore, he gave you over to the looter and to the plunderers, even as he said he would do back when Moses gave it to you in the first place. That the curses of God's discipline and his covenant came true in you. And now you find yourselves in exile in Babylon. This is not figurative language, my friends. These people were actually plundered and looted. All of their wealth was carried off by the king of Babylon. They're now living as exiles in a foreign land. All they once knew has been taken away from them. So here's the question Isaiah raises for us. What does God do with a people who have turned from him? What does God do with a people who have rebelled against him? Who have disobeyed him? who haven't believed His Word, who haven't taken His law as their good, who haven't walked in obedience to Him and therefore have experienced His judgment, what does God do with the people like this? Because after all, isn't this why you face insecurity in your own relationship with God? You know you haven't walked in God's ways as you should. You haven't been faithful to God as you should. You haven't lived in obedience to God the way that you should. And so what creates insecurity in your relationship with God and mine is a realistic understanding of who we actually are. A realistic sense that we haven't lived up to what God would expect of us. We have good reason to be insecure if we're honest about ourselves at all. But listen to me. The problem isn't that you see your own sinfulness. That's good. The problem is that you don't see the goodness of God in the midst of your sinfulness. See, spiritual insecurity is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of God. Spiritual insecurity comes because we think that God relates to us 
based on what we deserve. And when we think that way, we have good reason to doubt that God loves us at all because we know that we're undeserving. But my friends, the amazing thing about God is that He doesn't relate to His people based on what they deserve. He relates to His people based on who they belong to. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord. Yeah, yeah, this is all true, people of God. This is all true. You have disobeyed God. You haven't walked with Him. You haven't been faithful to Him. You haven't experienced His blessing in your life because you've lived in disobedience and rebellion. That's all true. But now, thus says the Lord, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What defeats insecurity in your relationship with God is the knowledge that you are His. Not because of what you've done, but because of who He is and the gracious promises He's made to you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. God says to his people Israel, in spite of your folly and rebellion and disobedience, here's what's most true about you. You are mine. You belong to me. That's what's most true. That's what you most need to know. This is how grace works. This is the nature of God's covenantal goodness to his people. Why would God claim a people who are foolish and disobedient and rebellious? Because he's made a promise to Abraham and he's fulfilling that promise. Why would God claim you in spite of the fact that you are foolish and disobedient and rebellious? Because God's made a promise to Abraham. And you're a part of his fulfillment of that promise. See, it's not about you. It's about God. Your salvation isn't about you. It's about God. You belonging to God isn't about you. It's about God. Look at verse 10. Of Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Now, 
just to continue to deconstruct the way we tend to think that God relates to us based on what we deserve, back up to verse 8 and notice the kind of people he's talking to. (laughs) Here's who the witnesses are. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. See, he's not saying, now that you've got your act cleaned up and sorted your life out, now you can be my witnesses. What he's saying is, in the midst of your blindness and deafness and selfishness, you're mine. You're my witnesses. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. God says, your salvation is not about you, it's about me. Why do I choose, why do I save a faulty, flawed, foolish people? So that the world will know that I'm the only Savior. So that the world will know that I'm the only God. So that the world will know that I'm the one who saves my people. You are a testimony to my goodness and my grace and my power to save. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Remember that timeline we looked at? God's going to deliver his people from Babylon. Isaiah is promising that here. He's saying these Babylonian captors, who to you are so powerful and aggressive and mighty, I'm going to send them running to the ships in which they boast as fugitives because of my purpose to bring you out and bring you back. And then verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, A path in the mighty waters. What is that talking about? Is that just picturesque poetic language? No, that's a historical referent. What is it talking about? The Red Sea, the Exodus. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's talking about Pharaoh's entire army at the bottom of the Red Sea, dead. The Lord who did that, who brought his people out, says this. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Do you hear what God is saying? He's saying the exodus, as great as that was, that was not a one-time event in history. That's the pattern by which I work. 
I'm the God who delivers. I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who saves my people. And I'm going to deliver you from Babylon so that you might declare my praise. And I'm going to deliver people who are in bondage so that they might declare my praise. And I bring out captives and I free them and I bring them into new life so that they might declare my praise. This is what I do because I'm God. My friends, part of the reason you're insecure in your relationship with God is because you don't understand that you're a part of this story. You inherit the promises God made with Abraham. God doesn't love you because of your lovability. He loves you for His sake. He loves you because He is the God who loves His people. And He's promised to gather a people for Himself so that they might declare His praise and nothing is going to get in the way of Him fulfilling that promise. So listen to me. On your worst day, when you're most aware of your foolishness, here's what God says to you. I've called you by name. You are mine. On your most fragile day, when you doubt whether God even loves you, whether the promises of God are even true, here's what God says to you. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. My friends, the greatest news in all the world is that our salvation is not based on our worthiness, but on God's worthiness. This is the story you're living in. You see, Isaiah is applying these promises to the people in his day. He's saying, this is the God who's chosen you, who's called you. These promises are his promises to you. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is applying them to you this morning in our day because all those who have faith in Christ, all those who by Jesus have been brought into God's people are the sons and daughters of Abraham. It's those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham, whether they're Jewish, Gentile, American, Iraqi, British, wherever you come from, wherever in the world you are, if you're part of God's people, you inherit these promises. I wonder, did you catch, did you catch the foreshadowing in this text? Did you catch the hint of the cross that we see in this text? It's in verse 4 of chapter 43. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. That's a foreshadowing of the cross. Jesus is the one whom God will ultimately give in exchange for the life of His people. Jesus is the ransom, the great exchange that God will offer up for the salvation and deliverance of His people. We baptized nine people earlier this morning. You saw the video earlier in this service. And their baptism... It's not some subjective personal experience. It's not just a thing that's meaningful to them. What their baptism is, is their identification with this story. 
As God brought his people through the Red Sea in the Exodus, so he has brought these people out of their old life and into new life with him. Through Jesus, they have joined the people of God. They've journeyed out of slavery and into freedom. And that's what the waters of baptism symbolize. They symbolize identification with this story, with this people, with this grand narrative that spans from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. And that is the story that you are caught up in this morning through faith in Christ. So I'm saying that the key to destroying, to defeating insecurity in your relationship with God is to see the larger story that you're caught up in. To hear God saying to you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my sight. You are honored and I love you. This is our story. This is the story you and I are caught up in if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning. This is what Jesus died to bring us into. Not just some personal experience of heaven when we die, but a grand and sweeping story of the people of God claimed for the glory of God, living for the praise of God through all eternity. What should this story create in us? When we see this, when we embrace this, when we know this to be true, when we hear these promises from God made to all who trust in Jesus, what should this create in us? At least three things. Number one, this should create in us firm confidence. Firm confidence in God and in His purposes. This is the God who delivers people through the Red Sea. This is the God who brings people out of captivity in exile. This is God who raises up Cyrus, who we'll see in two weeks, doesn't even know who God is, but God says, I'm raising him up. Why? To deliver my people. When we see this story, it should create in us a firm confidence in God and his purposes. Listen to me. Here's the great news. If you're insecure, if you're fearful, do you realize how good it is that you're not going to screw up God's purposes on earth? You're not going to mess it up. Your failures and foolishness are not going to deter the purposes of God from being realized. Just like the disobedience and foolishness of the people in Isaiah's day did not sideline the promises of God. God is out to redeem a people for himself. God is out to be glorified in the world. It's going to happen. He's going to bring it to fruition. And so you and I can have firm confidence in God and in his purposes. Secondly, this story should create in us radical devotion. Radical devotion to the God who loves us. Look, you might have heard Michael on the video when he talked about, I grew up in a religious household and that meant for me that I saw God sort of as this distant figure in the sky who sort of mandated how we should live and that wasn't very appealing to me. Of course not. Nor is it to any of us. But when you see that who God really is, is a God who says to sinful, foolish, flawed people, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. 
I love you. You're precious in my eyes. When we see that that's how God loves us in spite of ourselves, how can we not likewise love God? How can we not devote ourselves to God? How can we not respond to that love with love of our own? That says, I love this God who first loved me. It's seeing this grand story that inspires and awakens in us a radical devotion. Third, this story should create in us humble selflessness. See, a lot of our insecurity, if you really think about what insecurity is, a lot of our insecurity is just simply self-concern. It's focus on ourselves and how we're doing and do we measure up and does God love me today and did what I did yesterday remove God's love from me? How do I measure up to these people around me? How, does, how, how do I think about who I am and how I'm living? It's a relentless concern with self, but see, when we begin to see the story that God's caught us up in by grace, what that gives way to is a humble selflessness. God wants to release us from the prison of insecurity so that we can delight in Him and be His witnesses. So that we can say to the world, listen to me, God doesn't save the people who deserve it. He saves the people who don't. So guess what? If you think you deserve God's love, there's still work to be done in your life. But if you know that you don't deserve God's love, welcome. Come in and trust in Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. When we see the grand sweeping narrative of God's grace in history, it opens us up to a humble selflessness. It says, I can get my eyes off of me, I can stop worrying about my needs and my concerns and my fears, and I can rejoice in the God who loved me and who saved me, and then joyfully be involved in his purposes in the world. This story should create in us firm confidence, radical devotion, and humble selflessness. My friends, this is the story that we're living in. Isaiah wants you to see you're not some isolated individual living in 21st century America, doing your best to grind it out, figure out who God is, live a decent life, and and do okay in the world. You're one called by name, brought into God's family through the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit, uniting you with the Lord Jesus and connecting you to the promises God made to Abraham and the promises he gave to Israel and the promises he's speaking in the book of Isaiah. These are your promises. This is your story because you are a part of this people. So let's celebrate humbly as we pray together. Would you join me? God, so we affirm before you this morning that we have not walked in your ways. We've not obeyed you. We have experienced your judgments in our lives. You have given us up to be plundered and looted through the consequences of sin and foolishness and disobedience. 
So God, we, we know the truth about ourselves all too well. And yet this morning, we want to embrace the greater truth of who you are. I want to pray this morning that you would deliver us from the prison of insecurity and fear that says you relate to us based on what we deserve. God, help us see this morning the clear reality in the text of Isaiah that you relate to us based on sheer grace. You give us everything we don't deserve. Why? Because you love us. Because you've chosen to love a people who don't deserve it. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your majestic and wonderful grace. And, Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who've not yet been caught up into this story because they haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus and recognized that, that he's the one who's been traded for us. He's, he's the one whom God gave for me. Would you, this morning, move their hearts to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus? Would you, this morning, catch them up into this story and see the open invitation that extends to them to say, come be a part of this people. Come experience my faithful grace. And Father, as we come now to the communion table and as we stand now to worship and as we leave here now to go live another week in the world that you've made, would you give us great and firm confidence in who you are? Would you... Strengthen in us a radical sense of devotion to you. And would you help us be humbly selfless? God, you've made us your witnesses. So make us a people who delight in your grace and who bear witness to it in the world around us for your glory. Amen.